You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Welcome to SpyCast. My name is Dr. Andrew Hammond, historian and curator here at the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. Every week, SpyCast explores the world of intelligence and espionage by bringing you in-depth conversations with spies, spy masters, intelligence officers, and authors. We explore the stories, secrets, tradecraft, and technology of a world that looms beneath the surface of everyday life. I'm really excited to speak to you, Brad. We got together because there was an online program here at the Spy Museum and a very perceptive viewer saw that I had one of your books on my bookshelf. <laughs> so that's how we got connected. So I'm glad we're finally able to speak. And it's a pleasure to speak to you today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Another reason that I was excited to speak to you was I remember reading somewhere that one thing that we have in common is that we were both quite moved by Watership Down. Yes. And I, <laughs> I know that I actually haven't read the book, but I remember watching the movie and I <laughs> crying my eyes out when Art Garfunkel was singing Bright Eyes at the end. <laughs> so <laughs> That's one of my favorite books of all time. It was kind of embarrassed to admit it. That was an interview I did and they were like, what's your favorite book? And I guess they thought I was going to say something erudite. And I said, Watership Down. <laughs> <laughs> and I was thinking to myself, should I come out and admit this to Spycast viewers? But then if I've got someone that was in Delta Force that's happy to own it, then I'm just going to lean into it. <laughs> so tell us a little bit more about your book, Brad, American Traitor. This is the 15th in the series. Tell us about the book. Actually, the idea for it came out three books ago. I was writing Operator Down, and I, I always go to do on-the-ground research, and I was in Lesotho, Africa, doing research. The book was about a coup. And so I had to see the TV stations, the police headquarters, the parliament buildings, that kind of stuff. If I was going to do a coup here, what would I do? And I went to the parliament buildings and they were all brand new, under construction, completely brand new things, really nice. And there was Chinese lettering everywhere. And I assumed it said something like wear a hard hat behind, you know, beyond this point or something like that. But it was just weird. And I mean, why is there Chinese lettering everywhere in Lesotho, Africa? And so I asked the guy I was with and he said, oh, the Chinese are building this for us. I said, what are they doing that for? And he said, oh, they're just being nice. And I was like, no, they're not being nice. They want something out of this. It had nothing to do with that book. So, I mean, I completely ignored it, but it put a seed in my head. It was my first real world encounter with their Belt and Road Initiative, which is going all over the world. And then other things started popping up. Hong Kong obviously went to pieces. Taiwan was has, I think now they're down to 14 diplomatic relations. And China was doing their gray war, which is basically going to the Caribbean islands and doing their Belt and Road Initiative saying, I'll build you a port and I'll do this for you, I'll do that for you. 
All I want you to do is break diplomatic relations with Taiwan. And so it built up enough that I said, there's a story there. And so I started writing American Trader. Our listeners range from one of them could be the person that's on the China desk at the State Department <laughs> through to just the average person who's looking for a really gripping spy yarn. So could you just break down for us just in a couple of sentences? What's the Belt and Road Initiative and what is the Grey War? The Belt and Road Initiative is China's, they used to have the Silk Road way back in the day and they now call it the Belt and Road Initiative. It's a multi-trillion dollar thing China's doing, which is really a loan shark program. So they'll go into a country and say, we'll give you X amount of loans for this much money to build your ports up, to build up infrastructure. And then when the country can't pay it back, they seize it, basically. And they've done that in multiple different places. And Grey War is basically a war without fighting. I mean, the biggest example would be the Crimean Peninsula when the little green men were running around. It was an uprising, but it wasn't really an uprising. They were using that. And it causes us, the United States or anybody in the world to say, well, am I supposed to fight this? Or is this, what is this? What's going on here? And the Great War with Taiwan, the president of China has basically said, I'm not leaving Taiwan to the next generation. He is hell-bent on assuming control of Taiwan. And he has multiple levers to do that. One I just mentioned, he gets diplomatic relations to be broken. Others are, for instance, when I was in Taiwan doing research for the book, China said, okay, no tourism. Nobody from China mainland can go to Taiwan for tourism. Well, they really need tourism. And there's not a whole lot of Americans going to Taiwan for tourism. It's mainly from China. More recently, China has, a, believe it or not, healthy pineapple plantations, and 90% of them go to China. China just says, we're not going to buy your pineapples. And so gray war is an insidious way of locking somebody down. You see it overtly when they're doing their flyovers now, which are threatening. They're doing a lot of aircraft flyovers in across the Straits of Taiwan, breaking the airspace, which forces Taiwan to scramble jets every single time they do it, and it costs them money, and they have to have people on alert. And that's just trying to wear down the mental capability of the government of Taiwan to capitulate. I want to come back to the international backdrop, but I thought it would be quite interesting just to introduce our listeners to Pike Logan. Tell us a little bit more about him, not just in this novel, but across your 15 yeah. novels. I served 20 years in the military, most of that time in special operations. And I always had a bucket list item that I was going to write a book. I mean, I never thought it would sell. I thought it would sit on the nightstand and my mom would say, that's a really good book, Brad. And people talk about it, write what you know. I wanted to write a story of redemption. One Rough Man was the first book and it was a story of redemption. But people say, write what you know. I'm a special forces guy, so Pike became a counter-terrorist commando. If I'd have been a cop, Pike would have been a police officer. If I'd have been a priest, Jennifer Cahill would have been a nun. But I was what I was. So I wrote that novel and it sold. And since then, he's kind of grown out of that. He's obviously matured. And over the arc of the series for the 15th book, he's now actually, he's supposed to be diving the Great Barrier Reef with Jennifer in Australia when this whole thing kicks off. Help us understand a little bit more about his character. Um, what does he do? Um, what is he a part of? What's his backstory? The hardest part about writing was most of the stuff I did was classified. So I couldn't, I didn't want anybody to say I was writing a fiction and just changing the names to protect the innocent type thing. So I created something out of whole cloth, and people now ask me all the time. He works for an organization called the Task Force, which is codenamed Project Prometheus, but that's super double daddy bad classified, so they just call it the Task Force. And when I created that force, I was like, okay, I got to make something here out of whole cloth that doesn't exist. But I know how the military establishment, State Department, the National Command Authority, I know how they operate. So they wouldn't just make this thing and let it run amok. There would be some kind of oversight. And so then I built the Oversight Council on top of that. 
And the task force itself is basically a fusion of the intelligence community and the special operations community. So a seamless blend of intelligence and direct action capability, primarily focused on terrorist threats. And I actually made it, they have a charter and the charter is a foreign terrorist organization. If you're, if you're not on the FTO list from the State Department, then you're not a target of the task force, which once you create the universe and make it in stone, that started biting me in the butt because I'm like, okay, I want to go take on the Russians. Well, I can't. The charter says you have to, <laughs> you have to be an FTO. So what are you going to do now? And so I have to wicker all that, how I'm going through there. For instance, in this book, American Trader, the, I mean, the threat is China. They're not an FTO. <laughs> That's a state organization. So I have to figure out how I'm going to wicker all that. But that was the genesis of the idea, and it's grown over time where they now take on multiple threats. And, and honestly, it was kind of a fantasy of ours when I was you know, in the military. We don't have anything like the task force. People always ask me, there's a real Pike Logan task force out there. And I'm like, no, believe it or not, if I was going to write a real book about what happens, it would be 300 pages of PowerPoint briefings. And then the last page would be, denied your mission. I read somewhere that you were out on a date back in the day and you said to, is it your wife? You said, yeah, I want right to, now I, yeah, oh, you're now, <laughs> you said, I want to join special forces and write a book. And now you've done both. Yeah. Yeah. I told her that on our first date and I was basically just trying to get her clothes off because I hadn't done any of those things. I was just kind of bragging out a blowhard. And then I went, you know, obviously went in the army and ended up in special forces and ended up in a special mission unit. And then when I was taking a break from deployments, teaching at the Citadel here in Charleston, I said, oh, I think I'm going to write a book. And my wife was like, all right, whatever. <laughs> and then it sold. And the rest, as they say, is history. We're on book number 15 here. So we've got an idea about who Pike Logan is. What's the entry point into American Traitor? Take us into that novel in particular. Yeah, sure. So there was a lot of things that were fascinating. The hardest thing to keep up with is technology. I mean, it just spins at such a rapid rate. And if you don't keep your finger on the pulse, you, you just, you're writing about things that are three years ago type stuff. And I saw the, you know, the F-35 program, I started doing research on the F-35, which is a Lightning II Joint Strike Fighter, the most advanced aircraft in the known universe, if you talk to North of Grumman, but they build them all over the world. And they build them in Australia. And they had one crash in the Sea of Japan. And that's a true story. The opening of the book is this aircraft crashing in the Sea of Japan. And the actual verbiage between the pilot and the tower is the literal transcript from that crash. And nobody knows why it crashed. He, he was doing 600 knots and flew it straight into the ocean. And it became a huge problem. Everybody thought that the Chinese were going to send subs down there to get the information and that kind of stuff. We were trying to get the wreckage. We didn't find the pilot himself for a month later, deceased, obviously. Well, that sparked an idea in my head. And I did the, the new joint strike fighter. In the old days, you flew by wire and you could look out the window and see things. Well, nowadays, they have this $400,000 helmet they put on with sensors all around the plane. And everything being fed to you is being fed to you from software. What you see is the software derivative of what the plane is telling you. And I thought, well, if you could inject something in that software and the pilot was seeing something he thought he was seeing, but he wasn't really seeing that, that's the start of a story. And it involves artificial intelligence because China has said they're going to take over artificial intelligence. They, they say by 2030, they'll be ahead of us. And that's the rate they're going. They probably will. So that was a germ of an idea. And part of it also was, believe it or not, my wife actually wanted to dive the Great Barrier Reef. And she keeps telling me we need to set a book in Australia. I'm like, there's nothing going on in Australia. Well, I was doing a research on Taiwan and I found this thread into Australia where this guy had run for parliament. He was of Chinese descent, but he was an Australian citizen. He won his seat and he was going to parliament. And he then said, hey, the Chinese Communist Party paid for this. 
the MSS, the Ministry of State Security, the one that got me to run. They want me to go to Parliament to help out with them. And everybody was in an uproar. And three days later, he was found dead in a hotel room, cause of death unknown. I mean, that is a true story. It's in the book. But when I read that, I was like, holy moly, China's going crazy in Australia. And so I started doing research in Australia. For instance, China owns the port of Darwin, which nobody will admit how that happened. I mean, they had to go through all these government wickets. And then one day China says, OK, we own it. And now everybody in, in the parliament's like, how did that happen? And so there's a huge diaspora of Chinese in, in Australia. They have a lot of sway in what's going on there, just like they do in the United States with their Confucian Institutes and all of our universities and things like that. And so that started really getting my juices going about what's going on here. Taiwan itself. And, you know, when I was writing the book, Hong Kong was just starting to go bad, which was causing me all kinds of consternations. I was like, you know, either solve this problem or let it go, whatever. I can't have this keep going on because I'm not sure what's going to happen with Taiwan. I sort of predicted, well, I looked at it and said that, you know, this is going to be a long, slow burn. They did their new national security law. And I said, this is just going to drag out. So, okay, I'm okay. But because of what happened in Hong Kong, Taiwan went much more into let's declare independence. And we have a policy that's called strategic ambiguity, which is we don't want Taiwan to declare independence because that'll force China's hand. But on the other hand, we don't want China to think that we're just going to sit this whole thing out. So we've never publicly said we're definitely going to come to the defense of Taiwan, but we've also never said we won't. And now that's a huge raging debate in the national security establishment because of China's and Spratly Islands are trying to take over all the islands down south. But their gray war actually extends into the United States. So we do things, for instance, there was a movie called Abominable. It was a Disney movie. And they had, uh, it's an animated movie and this, it's about this snowman who's trying to, this Yeti is trying to get back to China. And in order to show it in China, China has this thing called the nine dash line, which is basically what they say their boundaries are, which is way south in the south. Basically, they own the South China Sea and they say that's our heritage. And it's gone forward. And even the United Nations says that's not right. You can't do that. All those islands are contested. Well, in order to show that movie inside China, the abominable snowman had to look at his map and say, here's where home is. And it was the nine dash line on the map. And that's because we want to make money over there. We'll give you another example. Top Gun's coming out. The new Top Gun. Old Maverick. He's coming out again. He's putting on his leather jacket and everything. If you look at the trailer, there's a distinct difference between the 1986 jacket and this jacket. In 1986, he's got a flag of Taiwan on the back of his jacket. On this one, he does not. And that's because they want to sell the movie to China. Wow. So soft power is having a discernible effect then out in the South China Sea? Absolutely. Absolutely. And the reason they want Taiwan so bad is if, you know, you have 12 nautical miles off your coast, that's international waters. Well, if I find an island and I claim it's mine and it's at 13 nautical miles, I just added another 12 nautical miles to my coast. So they want these Spratly Islands for that very reason. The problem is that far south, they've got all the Spratly Islands. Well, way north, right near the Taiwan Strait is Taiwan. And without owning Taiwan, the rest of those islands mean nothing. And we do font ops, we call them freedom of navigation exercises, which we basically send a carrier battle group through the Strait of Taiwan solely to say, this is still international waters. If they were to take Taiwan, then they would have absolute control over that and say, that's not international waters, that's our land. Get out of here. One of the things that I find really fascinating about your book and about your books is the interplay between Pike Logan and his world and real world international relations and strategy and geopolitics and so forth. Could For our listeners that aren't up on that, give us a really brief synopsis of the strategic situation out there between Taiwan, China and the United States. Like what's the order of battle? What's at stake? 
Well, they want Taiwan very badly, and they've said they're not going to pass it up. And, you know, it's a brief history lesson. Basically, we called Taiwan the actual official China up until Richard Nixon. And then Richard Nixon said, the PRC is now the official China. And then Jimmy Carter said, we're actually going to move our embassy. We used to have an embassy in Taiwan. We're going to move our embassy from Taiwan into Beijing. So now China is the 800-pound gorilla, but Taiwan still exists. Taiwan is where all the, you know, the guys fled. Chiang Kai-shek fled from Mao Zedong. And they're inside Taiwan. Well, they, they have always said, we're the real China. We own all that land that you guys say you have. It's actually ours. Through the years, though, that's changed until now, if you talk to most of the people in Taiwan who are all, you know, from mainland, well, not all of them, there's an indigenous population there as well, obviously. But the Chinese who are there now say that they're Taiwanese. They don't even consider themselves Chinese. They say, I'm Taiwanese. We should declare independence. Well, there's a separate group in there that China really wants to inflame. The tribes that work there, the mafia groups and stuff, they're on China's side because China gives them money. China lets them do things. And China uses them, leverages them to destabilize Taiwan. And Taiwan's kind of like a pawn in this huge geopolitical strategic goals out here because of what their key position is in the Straits, the Taiwan Straits, and because of if they take Taiwan, it's very easy to start taking everything else. I mean, if China wants anything else, they can get it. And when you talk about our capabilities vis-a-vis China to take Taiwan, the God's honest truth is if China wants Taiwan, they're going to get it. The big discussions going on now in the Defense Department is, you know, how do we prevent that? We don't have the capability of getting there quick enough to stop them. It would take three days. China could bombard that island, knock out all the airfields, then roll right in, basically. And if you don't stop them at the beaches, if you don't keep them from going in, there's a thing called anti-excess, anti-denial, A2AD, which is what China is trying to do to us, believe it or not. Everybody's learned a lesson from Desert Storm, every country on the planet. If you give the United States time to build up combat power, you're not going to win. It's just not going to happen. So everybody's decided, okay, the easiest way to defeat America is just to keep them from getting in. So China's developed this huge A2AD defense system on the coast. They have carrier killers and hypersonic missiles and all this to keep us from getting in. Well, Taiwan's now looking at that and saying, you know, what's good for the goose is good for the gander. We should do the same thing. We should prevent China from being able to get in here. And there's a huge argument about defense in depth in Taiwan. In other words, give them the beaches and we'll just fight all the way to the cities. Other people are saying, no, you give them the beaches, we're done for. And that's been debated back and forth and back and forth. One thing it's not under debate is every single war game we've had where we went against China when they tried to take Taiwan, China won every single time just because the tyranny of distance. You cannot defeat the tyranny of distance. We cannot get enough stuff there in time before they own it. And now you you have a problem of do we really want to fight in a battle of Okinawa type thing where we're trying to kick China out and lose 100,000 Americans or just give them the fait accompli? And so that's where the debate on uh, strategic ambiguity comes in. In order to prevent China from trying to do this, maybe we should just say, you do anything, we're going to war. And that would keep them from doing it. The downside to that is if you say you do anything, we're going to war, Taiwan may say, oh, we got America's back. Let's declare independence. And as soon as they declare independence, we're going to war. So it's kind of you're on the horns of dilemma. We'll be right back after this. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. 
Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. One of the things that I found really interesting about the book, you've really done your research on some of the Chinese intelligence agencies like the Ministry of State Security and so forth. Tell us about some of those agencies. How did you get your head around them? And how did you integrate that intelligence component into the book? Yeah, that was the hardest thing to do. I'll tell you, there's, there's a lot of books on Chinese intelligence, but most of them are dated. The latest one I had that I could find was written in like 1973. There's a lot of good articles out there on them that are recent on what they're doing. And what fascinated me is, I mean, everybody's heard of the KGB. Putin's out there killing people with nerve agent all over the world, the GRU. You know, that was always the bad guy in television, movies. Everybody's, if you say KGB, people know what it is. You say MSS, nobody has ever heard of that. And yet they're the largest intelligence organization in the world, by far. They have their tentacles everywhere. And they have 10 bureaus and they all do different things. And it was a lot of work trying to figure out, okay, what bureau, because somebody will say the seventh bureau does X. And then you read somebody else and you say, well, he didn't know what he's talking about. I lived in Shanghai and I did all this top secret stuff. And the seventh bureau actually does Y. And they have obfuscation all through it of what they're doing. And the hardest part about trying to decipher the Chinese intelligence system is, for instance, the United States, we have the CIA. So you have a case officer. Now he'll develop an asset and that, uh, or source, depending on you know who you're talking to, what they want to call it. But that's a clear break. I work for the CIA. It doesn't work that way for the Chinese. They have a huge diaspora. And when you roll somebody up, for instance, we just rolled up a police officer inside New York City. A New York City cop working for the MSS was keeping tabs on Tibetan refugees. Now, is that guy work for the, I mean, is he an MSS agent or is he just some guy that's getting paid by the MSS? The laundry clerk who works in San Francisco, they'll go leverage those people and they use them all over the place. Universities is a huge place to use them. So when you send students to university, you know, University of Texas, say, they're coming from China. Well, they're coming with some strings attached and they're going to work for the MSS. My daughter was at boarding school here in Charleston. They had a bunch of Chinese students and I actually gave a class on Title 10 versus Title 50, unclassified class. They asked me to come in and talk about it. And so I was going to tell them about the difference between Title 10, Title 50, what covert action means and what the law says. And there was these two Chinese girls in the class. And I was like, maybe I shouldn't be talking about this in front of them because they use it all over the place. And one of the biggest things that the intelligence service has in China that we don't have here, it used to be back in the day, even the latter half of my military career, where the director of science and technology for the CIA, you had your Q from James Bond. He had all the neat widgets. Well, it's not that way anymore. The commercial off-the-shelf stuff is far outpacing anything the government can do. Uh, I mean, as an example, the Army tried to build a small quadcopter drone that the soldiers could use, and two years later, they're buying DJI drones because the Army took forever to develop this thing. And then it turned out the DJI drones, which is owned by China, is filming all that stuff and sending it back to servers in China. Every DJI drone that flies around the United States, if you don't fix your settings, it's exporting all that stuff. You're basically mapping the United States for China, which is why now the Department of Homeland Security told all government officials, don't use Chinese drones. 
But the Chinese have an edge on that, is that by their constitution, if you develop anything in China through technology, you are by the constitution have to give it to the government. We don't have that. So we have people fighting, Google's fighting whoever on artificial intelligence here in the United States, and they're keeping everything proprietary. They don't have that problem in China. You've developed something, you're giving it to the Chinese. Now, in America, for instance, Google, we had a thing called Project Maven, which is a Department of Defense artificial intelligence program, which we were just trying to develop artificial intelligence. And people automatically got all up in arms about it and said, you're trying to develop killer robots and things like that. And that's not what it is. Project Maven was, let's figure out both the moral and ethical dilemmas of artificial intelligence, and let's develop artificial intelligence. I mean, most people don't even realize we're talking on the internet right now. Well, guess who invented the internet? Department of Defense invented the internet. So Google pulled out. Their people went crazy and said, we're not helping the Department of Defense do this Project Maven. That's just evil. And they pulled out of it. Google's working for China. They're in their artificial intelligence stuff, doing stuff every day. And every bit of that is going to the Chinese military. So it's, we're at a disadvantage. This brings me to Jake Shu. Could you tell us a little bit more about him? Yeah, yeah. He's actually what, what I was just talking about. So he's a, he's a Chinese descent, American citizen, really smart guy. He gets his degree at Stanford. And while he's there, he feels just like happens with a lot of people in the United States. He feels out of sorts. He's homesick and that kind of stuff. And he gets befriended by people who are Chinese agents. He doesn't know it at the time, but they sink their hooks in him. And the next thing you know, he's up working for the Department of Defense, and they still have their hooks in him. And he is the guy that's going to try to infiltrate, or actually does infiltrate, the F-35 program with their sensor development by putting in artificial intelligence malware that causes the first plane to crash. When did you write this book? Actually, I was wondering, how am I going to handle a pandemic in this thing? Because when I was in Taiwan, you know, at the Shinlin Night Market, there were thousands of people there. It was jam-packed going up to the Type A 101, which is in the book that was the tallest building in the world for about 10 minutes until the Berg Khalif was built. There were thousands of people running up and down that thing. And so then I got home to bang the book out. You know, I was in Cannes, Australia. I was in Sydney, the Opera House, all these people ever running. And then the pandemic hit. <laughs> Everything got locked down. And I write current events, which is a problem with current events is they're current. And so I was like, how am I going to solve this problem? Because there's probably nobody in the Shinlin Night Market right now. And how is Pike going to do surveillance in Sydney when there's only two people on the street, him and the target? I mean, there's nowhere to blend in. Now is he going to fly around because there's no aircraft flying? And so I decided to set it right at the Taiwanese elections, which is, which is what the book was about anyway, right before the pandemic hits. In that episode last year about Chinese communist espionage, we spoke about how China may or may not try to leverage diaspora communities. The difficulty, on the other hand, of Western intelligence agencies conducting human operations within China. So I was just wondering, during the pandemic, you know, given everything that's happened in, in the United States and the various developments and, and SpyCast, we, if we stick to intelligence and espionage, we are one of a dozen. If we do politics, we're one of 5,000. So I don't want to get into politics, but just the climate that we're in and the sensitivities did you was there part of you that thought this is maybe the wrong time to have a chinese american traitor or was no. that not a consideration no it wasn't and i see what you're saying now when i was writing the book obviously it came out of china and then there was a lot of discussions about the wuhan lab and that kind of stuff and i mean everything that's in the book there's nothing that's i don't write politics first of all i don't do politics there's nothing in there that's overtly 
Asian bashing or anything like that. I just spell it out. They have their national command authority that wants to do certain things and we have ours. And it's not, it's like gravity. People say, you're making fun of China. I'm like, no, I'm not. It's like saying, if I drop this rocket and it hits the ground, it just is. That's what China does. And they do it very effectively. And we have our national command priorities. And one of those is Taiwan. I have been asked that question before, though. It's like, are you inflaming tensions? I'm like, well, no, not really. And then people ask me about the virus itself. That, you know, it's a bioweapon that came out of a lab. And, and I can put that to rest. I said, I know a thing or two about bioweapons and what you want from a bioweapon is number one, it kills the enemy and doesn't kill you. Number two, it's rapid. And for instance, in America, we gave small blankets infected with smallpox to the Indians because they wouldn't hurt us, but it would hurt them. And when I saw the coronavirus, oh yeah, number three, it's got to hit who do you want to kill with a bioweapon? You want to hear the healthy young people, the ones doing the fighting. That's who you want to get rid of. Well, this weapon if it was a weapon, was only killing the old people, which doesn't help. It takes two weeks to incubate. So if you did it on D-Day, we'd already be in Paris by the time it affected anybody. And it kills both sides. I mean, you release that thing, you're going to get your own guys killed. And so I immediately was like, this whole thing about it being a bioweapon coming out of China is just stupid. It's, not, it's the worst bioweapon ever made if they were going to make one. So I guess I got off on a tangent there, but no, I didn't consider what you asked. Without giving away too much of the plot... Tell us a little bit more about how the rest of the novel plays out. So we've got Jake Chu, we've got Pike Logan. Tell us as much as you can without giving away the game. So I did a lot of research on how would China take over Taiwan. And obviously there's no right answer. And there's a bazillion people who say it one way or the other. So I thought with the way they're doing artificial intelligence, if you wanted to do the AD thing, keeping them off the beaches of Taiwan, they would have to have some ability to trigger that it is, in fact, an invasion coming. There has to be something. It can't just be a bunch of fishing boats. And that's what artificial intelligence does. It starts sifting through reams of data and then gives you an output saying, this is what's going to occur. And so they are developing that system inside Taiwan. And so I decided to, obviously, for fiction, I <laughs> started to increase that until it was a whole scope thing where even their underwater drones and, and everything they had, air uh, surveillance system, were all tied into this artificial intelligence system, which could predict this is a trigger point because China does a lot of exercises all the time. They're always exercising somewhere off the coast. And each time you do, that's basically what the signature of an actual invasion would be. When they build all their forces up and they do an exercise, the next time they build their forces up, it may not be. And so Taiwan's trying to develop this artificial intelligence system to tell them which one is real. And China says, okay, we can't do a cold start invasion because that'll trigger the Americans to come in. But what if we get Taiwan to attack us first? If they attack us first with some of their hypersonic missiles, then we're defending ourselves. And so the whole thing Jack Chu's trying to do is inject this artificial intelligence malware that he used on a single F-35 into their defense systems to make the Taiwanese think they're being attacked, to get Taiwan to react to a, a mock attack, allowing the Chinese to then say self-defense and attack. I probably just gave the whole plot away, but Pike Logan saves the day. <laughs> I found it really interesting in the novel as well the way that you speak about deep fakes and artificial intelligence and so forth. And right from the opening chapter, you're launched into the question of where does reality end and non-reality begin? Could you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah. So deep fakes are created by the porn industry. 
Somebody wanted to see, you know, Scarlett Johansson getting it on. They made her look like Scarlett Johansson in the thing. The porn industry actually invents quite a lot of stuff. So when you say pay-per-view boxing match and you're paying for that, the porn industry invented that because they want to make money. So the deep fake is basically, in the old days, it was kind of crude. If you've seen the movie Forrest Gump, and in Forrest Gump, they have a lot of real footage. They're going to the Brown versus Board of Education. He's talking to President Johnson, that kind of stuff. That's real footage, and they inject Forrest Gump into that footage. Well, that's a deep fake. Nowadays, they can do it in such a manner that you can't determine whether it's real or whether it's fake. Somebody in a back room, you film something saying this politician did A, B, C, and D, and it gets out in the world, and it's completely fake, but it looks completely real. And the only way to determine whether it's real or not is to break down the ones and zeros of the actual program itself and say, we can determine that this was manipulated or whatever. Well, by that time, it's traveled around the world and people believe whatever they see. And we saw it in this last election over and over again, really crude deep fakes where they just speed up somebody's hand or manipulate their lips just a little bit, you know, make it look like somebody's drunk type stuff. But you can make a deep fake now and with open source tools, I've done it. You Google online open source tools. If you had a picture of somebody, you can make the deep fake. In fact, there's a comedian who starred in Tropic Thunder and he's talking to, I think it's David Letterman or it might have been, it's a night show. And he starts doing impressions of Tom Cruise and doing impressions of Seth Rogen. In the real footage, he's just doing the impression. In the footage you can find on YouTube, they morph him into Tom Cruise and then he morphs back into himself. And then they morph him into Seth Rogen and he morphs back into himself. And it's seamless. I mean, you think you're looking at Tom Cruise doing something. The big problem with deepfakes is, it, it, as just as you said, where does reality end where is what is fake? There's a thing called the liar's dividend, which is the opposite. So you somebody actually does film some politician taking a bribe and he's going to go do awful things and they have it on tape and they say, look what this guy did. And the liar's dividend is he now has the ability to say, well, that's a deepfake. That's completely fake. That was not me. And now the population sits there and says, well, is it real or is it not? I don't know who to believe. And it's causing a real problem on just about every schism of society, not the least being the Department of Defense. One of the things that struck me as quite interesting is from soldier to professor at the Citadel to now author and novelist, I was just thinking when being in the military, you were in Delta Force, there's something out there, there's a real enemy that you can go and you can tackle, you can fight, you can have a firefight with. I guess my question is, how did you find it researching all of this about artificial intelligence and deep fakes is coming from the background of here are where the bad guys are, here's what we have to do to get them to now, well, who are the bad guys or are they really there? Yeah, it's or? actually, it's not as big a leap as you would think. Because when you're going after the bad guys, what you're, you're ultimately doing, the bad guys is a tactical problem. That's a tactical, this guy's blowing people up and I'm going to stop him from blowing people up. The bigger problem is the ideology. That's one of the, just like you said, how do I get my hands around that? How do I get the next guy to decide not to build a bomb? That's how you win the victory. You don't just kill all the bomb makers. You got to get the next guy to not want to be a bomb maker. And that's much more amorphous. It's definitely not clean. You're not looking and saying, that's the bad guy. If I get rid of him, terrorism goes away. That's not going to happen. You've got to find the solutions of, for instance, the awakening in the Al-Anbar province in, in Iraq. Basically, the Sunnis, Zarqawi was killing everybody. He hated the Shia just as much as he hated Americans. He was killing Muslims left and right. And they got fed up with it. So one day, some guy came to an American base who had been killing Americans 
and said, hey, look, we're, I'm part of this tribe. We've been killing you as insurgents. We're sick of this guy. If you give us guns and, and money, we'll go kill him. And we know where they are. And it had been very easy for that military man with a military mindset to say, arrest him. He's on our wanted poster. We know who he is. Instead, some courageous guy said, give him some money and some ammo. And the next thing you know, we ran them all out of Iraq, which is a double-edged sword because then ISIS came in and said, we saw what happened last time. And so they started lopping everybody's heads off. <laughs> we don't want those guys coming back again. But it's a bigger problem set than we never looked at the problem as just, I'm a hammer, where's the nail? You've got to be a whole tool set and you're solving a bigger problem than just putting a bullet in someone's head. That's an interesting insight. One of the other questions that I wanted to ask was, Going back to the OSS in the United States, the links between intelligence and special forces has been a close one. Tell us how you live through that. Like where does special forces end and intelligence begin or how did they fuse within your world, um, within your life before you became an author? I think that we've gone back and forth and usually it's wartime that causes it. So the OSS in World War II was definitely a fusion of direct action and intelligence. That was their whole thing. And then we created the CIA and actually the same act created the Department of Defense. And we went our separate ways. And I'll tell you, some countries do it better than others. For instance, Israel does it pretty well. I mean, it's a much smaller country, so it's not really just kind of apples to oranges. But most of the people in the Mossad have all served in the military. There's not a whole lot of people in the Mossad that just come off the street like you can in the CIA. So they have a much closer relationship between the military and their intelligence agency. And then we kind of drifted apart and then Vietnam happened and we got back together again. So in Vietnam, you've got MACVSOG, Special Operations Group, Studies and Observation Group by the classification, was working hand in glove with the CIA. CIA was developing programs that they were executing. We were back hand in glove again throughout Vietnam. And then Vietnam ended and we drifted away again. And everybody's got their rice bowls that they want to protect. So the CIA says, it's my mission. And the military says, no, that's my mission. Well, the problem I saw after 9-11, and it was a big problem for a while there, where there was huge rice bowls. Rumsfeld was protecting what he had. The CIA tenant was protecting what he had. And there was a lot of stuff that was happening. Basically, the military provides a lot of support to the CIA. A lot of support. I mean, a ton of support. And one day, Rumsfeld said, we're not doing that support anymore, which was going to hamper the fight that was going on. So the grunts like me were like, this is ridiculous. You guys need to figure it out. And the problem was that I was mentioning Title 10, Title 50 earlier. Title 50 was national strategic intelligence. We do the big picture stuff. CIA says, I'm going to tell you if the Soviet Union is coming through the fold of gap. That's my mission. Military intelligence was Title 10, was tactical. You tell me they're coming through the gap, and then I'm going to tell my boss how many tanks there are and where to put the landmines and that kind of stuff. It was tactical intelligence. Well, after 9-11, the Title 10, Title 50 fight just became a mess because the military says that killing Osama bin Laden is a tactical problem. That's no different than telling where to place landmines for the tanks coming through the Folder Gap. Well, then CIA says, well, wait a minute, bin Laden's a strategic problem. He's a national strategic threat. So that's our lane. And so we had a lot of fights about who's in charge of this and who's doing what. And there were a lot of people trying to protect their rice bowls. I saw the fighting up close and personal. I, I mean, I did some time up at uh, the agency, and uh, I just saw that you guys need to get a line here. And eventually, we did figure it out. There was kind of a shifting of forces. So, for instance, Petraeus, a military guy, takes over the CIA. Gates, a CIA guy through and through from the ground up, takes over the Department of Defense. And they started working together. 
And so it's gotten a lot better than it used to be. But, you know, in my time there, there was a lot of fighting over who's got primacy on what's going on here, all the way down to even ordinary operations in countries with which we weren't at war. So if we wanted to do what we called AFO operations, advanced force operations, if you look at covert action, the you know, statute for covert action has two components. You're going to alter big things, political, economic, military conditions abroad, and you're not going to acknowledge that the United States did it. In the statute itself, it says traditional military activities by law are excluded from covert action. Well, then you got this fight going on. So traditional military activity of the CIA is you're wearing camouflage and putting a tent up somewhere and serving chow. Now, if I'm doing that same thing, but I'm doing it in a country where I'm driving a Toyota Hilux and I'm wearing civilian clothes, and instead of a tent, I'm using a hotel room, to me, that's a traditional military activity. I'm doing the exact same thing I would have if I was in Kuwait, but now I'm doing it in this city X. The military says, or the CIA says, nope, that's covert action. Baby, you better quit that. Because by law, by statute, any covert action, the military can do it. As Osama bin Laden was killed under Title 50, it's a military operation, but it has to be under control of the CIA by law. And so that's the primacy fight. So if you're going to call it covert action, I'm saying it's Title 10. As soon as I say it's covert action, the CIA is in charge. And no way does the military want the CIA to be in charge of them. And so there was just a lot of fighting that went on over those types of things. How do you see special forces, intelligence agencies pivoting towards the things that you speak about in the book, deep fakes, artificial intelligence, those other things that we spoke about yeah, earlier? They- Right now, the Department of Defense, I can't speak for the intelligence agencies, but I know for the Department of Defense, they're really spinning their wheels on what are we going to do with artificial intelligence. And their big concern is the moral aspect. I mean, how far do you go in artificial intelligence? So we've said outright that we'll never have a weapon system that can find the target, fix the target, and eliminate the target all by itself. There will always be a man in a loop. So whoever's going to pull the trigger will be a human being. So we don't have Terminator, Skynet, robots running around. Well, then the moral conundrum comes in, okay, well, how are you getting the feeds for this? So you'll have artificial intelligence find the target and then tell you it's here and then you'll pull the trigger. Well, how do you know that they found the right thing? Shouldn't you have a human vetting the find to begin with and then a human vetting the fix? And if you do all that, then you're defeating the purpose of artificial intelligence because it's there to make your decision cycle OODA loop. It's make your OODA loop quicker. You can observe, orient, decide, act is the OODA loop. And if I can get that, the shorter I can get that, the better off I am. Well, the artificial intelligence part of that is observe, orient, and then boom, the human decides, and then the act happens. So if I can do the first part of that faster, then I can theoretically outpace my enemy. But you get so far down the line that the moral conundrum then becomes, well, I'm just got a robot out there killing people. And so that's kind of where we're right now. It's We spend most of our time debating the esoteric, how are we going to do this? What's right type thing? And it's not unlike, you know, the medical field. They argue about genetics, you know, and DNA and altering this and that kind of stuff. So we have not gone too far. Now, the Chinese, they don't care. So they're just developing artificial intelligence for everything. And once they get to where they're – they haven't beaten us yet. We're, we're still ahead of them. But they're getting to the point where they're about to beat us. And what keeps you up at night, Brad, out of all of these threats that we've discussed? Like, what are you like, oh, dear, that's quite scary, the, this – X that my children are going to face one time when me and you are up in the sky? I'll be honest with you. What keeps me up at night is the unknown. We have never been right on any of this. We're talking about great power competition. The CIA is redirecting towards, you know, the Asian theater in China. And and the military obviously has been trying for 
decades to get out of the Middle East and they want to pivot to China. It's been a watchword. It's kind of like infrastructure week. It, I mean, it just happens every 10 minutes for pivoting to China. I think that the threat is going to be something we don't see at all. And it's going to be Sarajevo for World War I type thing where we don't even realize it's happening. Myanmar right now, for instance, they're, they're going crazy all over India with their COVID thing. I mean, that's a book in and of itself. If that place implodes, I mean, they have nuclear weapons. There could just be a mess there. And nobody really pays attention to that because it's relatively peaceful and nobody really cares. We're all looking at China. What keeps me up is something like that is going to happen that we're not really paying attention to at all. I wanted to ask you a little bit more about process for writing. How did you balance plot versus characters? I quite appreciate (laughs) Yes, especially late at night when I'm tired and I'm a completist. I want to get to the end of the chapter and I don't have the steam to get to 50 pages in so I can just take it chapter by chapter. Like, Help us understand how you break all of this down. Yeah, I had a lot to learn about writing. I've never had any writing instruction. I was always a voracious reader, so they've basically been other authors. And all I set out to do from the very beginning was I'm going to write a book that I'd like to read. And how I like to do that. And I I honestly can't explain. I mean, I don't do a lot of conscious decision making on plot versus character versus this versus that. I know that you have to care about the characters. Characters come first and foremost of all of that. That's the biggest thing there is. And I mean both good and bad guys. You can't have just Dr. Evil there doing whatever he's going to do. You just want to make him evil. There's a reason he's doing it. And there's a, and nine times out of ten, the Dr. Evil is actually – he's justifying what he's doing. He doesn't consider himself evil, especially for terrorism. I mean, I've sat across from a lot of terrorists interrogated. I mean, you'd sit there and go, this guy's actually kind of funny. Why does he want to kill everybody? They have what they believe is they're doing, and you need to capture that in the book. If you had a car bomb blow up in an empty parking lot, who cares about that? You only care about that if there's somebody in the book that you care about that's going to get hit by that car bomb. And so that's first and foremost in my mind is I've got to really develop the characters. As far as the pacing goes, I just kind of read it. And I don't know. It's just kind of internal. I say that's too slow or that's too fast or I need to add something here to break this up. For instance, the Jake Shu, Clifford Del Monte in the book is getting the Chinese assassins are chasing him. And it's a, through the botanical gardens in uh, Sydney. He ends up on the nurse's walk and there's a big fight with Pike and everything. That took a lot of development to get the pacing on that right. Because I want the reader to be in the cars at Rex, not on the corner watching the car wreck. You want them to experience everything that that guy's experiencing, not be somebody who's just looking at it from afar. And so that takes a lot of work to get it until a point where I say, okay, I I think I got it here. Sometimes it works and I, sometimes maybe it doesn't. There's probably a few spycast listeners out there who are thinking, I have a great story. It could be the story of their own life or in their own head. Like, mm-hmm. What advice would you give as a New York Times bestselling author on how does Joe or Jane out there take this story and then bring it to reality for their first novel? I would say, I mean, and this sounds trite, but I say it to everybody because nine times out of 10, someone will email me and say, I've got this neat outline. How do I sell it to a publisher? That's not how it works. The first thing you have to do is write a book. So my advice would be write the book and make it the best book you possibly can. Don't worry about any of that other stuff. If I'd have known how hard it was to get published, I probably never would have tried. I didn't know any better. And I, like I said, I wrote the book and thought it'd sit on the bedside table. I wrote the book because I wanted to write a book. And if you really want to write a book and you think you've got a good story, then write the book. Red Sparrow is a really good book. Then he just wanted to write a book. But get the book out first and then worry about the other stuff. And for getting the book out, like, did you have like a daily work limit or do you have like a process? Was it early in the morning, late at night? 
When the first book, I mean, the joke is you've got your entire life to write your first book. Your second book, you're on a deadline. <laughs> so then you better develop a process. So I know I learned early on that I can write anywhere. I don't even have a writing desk, which really crushed me during a pandemic because I used to write. I'd go to a park. I'd go to a library. I'd go. I'd write in barracks. I'd write in airports. I'd write in gymnastics meets for my daughters. I could write anywhere. And then the pandemic hit and I was stuck in my house. And I'm like, I have no writing space here. My wife's telling me, get out of the den. I'm sick of seeing you. Go somewhere else. And so it was a lot harder. But I, I, I don't have a wake up at six and type this many words and then go eat lunch and type that many words. Some days, and people ask, you know, how many words a day do you write? And to me, that's typing. So I'm always writing. I'm thinking in my head all the time about what I'm going to do, how I'm going to do this, how I'm going to fix that. And then when it coalesces in my head, then I'll type. And a lot of people confuse typing for writing, but writing is much more than just putting words on a page. What comes next, Brad? Are you already thinking beyond the pipe, Logan, or do you want to? I was thinking, you know, you were 21 years in the military. Are you going to do 21 pipe Logan novels and then move <laughs> on to something else? I don't know. I'm, I can't think back to this book. Probably one of my biggest failings is I can't say, okay, five books from now, I'm going to do this. So I'll seed it in this book. So I do each book one at a time, banging that baby out. And I'm working on the next Pike Logan right now. In fact, I'm almost done with it. So what I'm going to do after this book, I don't know. I got to figure that out. <laughs> and can you give us a little teaser about the next book? Where is it set? I was doing research for the insider threat, which is an ISIS attack against the Vatican. So I was running around Rome and I ran to this organization called the Knights of Malta, which has been around as a chivalric organization. It's been around since the Crusades. And it was the strangest thing ever. They, they have their own stamps. They have their own currency. They have diplomatic passports. They have a seat at the UN, but they don't own any terrain. They just have a building in Rome, but they're considered a sovereign state. And I thought, that is the weirdest thing I've ever heard of. And so I said to myself, one of these days, I'm going to put them in a book. And so now I am. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's been so great to speak to you, Brad. I don't know if there's any other things that you think we should have spoke about with regards to your book or intelligence that we haven't touched upon. This is just your moment to say there's an ingredient I should have been using in making the dish that I forgot to incorporate. <laughs> no, I think we actually went around the world a little bit there. I talked a lot more about things that I never thought I would. <laughs> I will say if anybody wants to read excerpts of the books, like my, my website, bradtaylorbooks.com, there's an excerpt of many of them. They can get a flavor of it right there. It really is a page turner, American traitor. I've read it twice now. It was great. So thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure to speak to you. Hey all, Rick here. At N2K CyberWire, we're dedicated to continuously improving the quality of the news and commentary on our network. That's why we're inviting you to participate in our 2024 audience survey. It only takes a few minutes and your feedback is invaluable. Plus, you'll have the chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card as a thank you for your time. Head on over to cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey to share your feedback now.